Today, all over the world, there are thousands of Sino-Soviet intelligence agents with money to burn, looking for unsuspecting targets for exploitation among members of our forces. So do you want to go ahead and start the pod? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, cool. So, yeah, we're going to talk about um, Vladimir Lenin's uh, Mm -hmm. state and revolution today on the pod. Uh, You know, we've just taken a break from Marx for a a minute. So we We thought we thought we were taking a break. We thought we were taking a break from Marx, but like, there's just so much Marx and Engels here in this text (laughs) that we were like, oh, so he's really just like. He's really just applying some. He's just doing some application work with the the works of uh, Engels and Marx here, really. But, yeah, you know, um, it's just a general overview. Yeah. Uh, so Austin, your your Penguin Classics edition, right? You have the Penguin mm-hmm. Classics edition. I have the. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was just the Martino Publishing edition, mm-hmm. which is it's just like a subsidiary of. Uh, right. It's just like a kind of a low tiered publishing company, um, but. Mm-hmm. Your edition has some background information on the the mm-hmm. writing of it of the text itself. So why don't you go ahead and just um, sure. give us some background info? So um, so I'm just gonna instead of just reading off my notes, which is really just highlighting straight out of the book, I'm just gonna read the the introduction paragraph here. And it's just I mean it's a good it's a good foundation of what happened. Um, so uh, the writing of the book is what this is titled, the introduction here in the Penguin's Classics. Uh, Vladimir Lenin believed that the state and revolution was his most important contribution to debates about politics. Uh, he took a very large subject that was the task of, achieve- of achieving socialism in a modern industrial society. Uh, he wrote the book in the summer of 1917. Uh, he was really excited about writing it. Uh, you know, he, was, he really wanted to write a piece that was anti, about anti-capitalist revolutions and how they were imminent throughout Europe. Uh, he really wanted to emphasize that this wasn't just, this isn't just about a, a Russian, this isn't just, he didn't write this book for a re- Russian revolution. Like he was, this is an anti-industrial, you know, capital world book um, that it applies across all of Europe uh, that he really wanted to emphasize. Uh, he wrote them under extraordinary conditions. Uh, the Russian Ministry of the Interior had issued a warrant out for his arrest in July of 1917, uh, and he fled from Petrograd, um, which was later renamed to Leningrad and Stalingrad. Uh, to, and he went into hiding, and that's when he started writing the book. Um, another, I mean, that's really it. I mean, after that, it really just kind of talks about the contents of the book. Uh, he said he was... Um, he was really concerned about whether he would live to complete this book because uh, he, you know, he thought he'd be assassinated or he was just on the run. He was on the run from these, uh, you know, the Ministry of State and uh, in hiding. And it, I, I don't know if he would ever, I don't know if it was a fear of living long enough or like an old age fear of not writing it before he died of old age or if he was just scared that, like, you know, someone would just come fucking blow his brains out, which he probably was, I mean, I was scared of that too. Um. So in terms of, you know, I don't want to, the next section of the Penguins Classic is talks about the contents of the book. And it really, I mean, I, we, we can kind of go out, go into it and just outlines what the contents are. Um, but I figured we would just do that along as we, as we read. Um, but basically, the content of the book that Lennon was really wanting to outline was that the the quote-unquote state uh, is an instrument for exploit the is an instrument for the exploitation of the oppressed class. And that's really what the 
like if you get down to it, this is that's the meat and the the central underlying idea of what this the early part of this book is about. Um, and he even goes on to say that uh, he has to make it clear that he's borrowing a lot of ideas uh, by citing Friedrich Engels, um, co-founder of Marxism. Uh, let it emphasize the state brought about socialist revolution that would not last eternally. And um, but yeah, that's uh, that's about it. And there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff here, and this introduction is so long that like it really it really covers a lot of ground really fast. And I don't want to read too much for this introduction because it's gonna get to the it's gonna get to a lot of the major points that I'm sure you you and I are gonna bring up. And that's basically about like if the question about that most people have about Lenin's ideas is that if there isn't if there isn't going to be a state, then what is there going to be? Or like if if the state's gonna disappear. Uh, most uh, critics of the idea are like, well, then what's if if the state withers away because the state is a tool of the bourgeoisie? Then, then like, what what will it be replaced by? And so he goes, and I, you know, we can talk about that in a little bit. But that's some of the questions that are asked early on, and some of the critiques. And um, right, because yeah. Lenin, Lenin in the first, uh, I guess we'll go ahead and just get into the first chapter. So we read the mm-hmm. preface, the right. first and second chapters. Um, so. The first chapter is called Class Society and the State. And the Mm -hmm. first section is the state as the product of the irreconcilability of class antagonism. So the first part, though, I want to say is that Lenin makes it clear here. And I think you can actually see it happening even today. You know, in Lenin's time, it was happening. And even today, it's it was it's Mm -hmm. happening in like academia and stuff that Marx and Engels becomes canonized. Right. He says that. Um, after their death, uh, attempts are made to turn them into harmless icons, canonize them, and surround their names with a certain halo for the consolation of the oppressed classes and with the object of duping them, while at the same time emasculating and vulgarizing the real essence of their revolutionary theories and blunting their revolutionary edge. So one thing that happens like a lot of times, and he even says they, they omit, obliterate, and distort the revolutionary side of its teaching, its revolutionary soul. So the th- You cut out for a little bit. Okay. Um, I was talking, so I don't know if you heard any of what I said. Did you hear anything I said? I did it, but if you, if you were talking, that's fine, because you just came back in. Okay. So what I was essentially saying is that Lenin was um Lenin comments on how Marx's theory is um basically castrated and turned into harmless theory whereas mm-hmm. there's a revolutionary side to Marx's theory where where the communist manifesto itself is a cry for um the oppressed peoples to unite and overthrow the bourgeoisie, right? Um mm-hmm. it's a revolutionary text in in that regard. So what I was saying was that um, Lenin talks about the Communist Manifesto. He also talks about Engels' The Origin of the Family, mm-hmm. Private Property, oh, yeah. and the State, mm-hmm. which I, I think that we should read on the on the pod because like, I've never read any full text by Engels. I've only read excerpts. But um, the thing about it, he, he talks about how um, Engels and Marx are historical um, thinkers in that they think in terms of like historical analysis where Ingalls talks about how, um, you know, there's this, uh, 
there's this thing that like the state is this uh like he says that like Ingalls uh, as quoted by Lenin says that Heigl thinks that the state is the reality of the moral idea <laughs> and Heigl thinks that the state is a reflection of uh morality itself and is is just formed into a concrete notion mm-hmm. and and here's where where Engels and Marx differ from Heigl it's that uh they think that it's a product of a society at a certain stage of development so the state is a power ar- that arose out of society but it places itself above society and in- and increasingly it separate uh it separates itself from society that and that's the state mm-hmm. right right um so Marxism kind of like the historical thought in Marxist critique, which, you know, like you said, Ingalls and Marx are both Marxists. Uh, well, Marx and Ingalls would probably disagree with that statement, but um, uh-huh. they're what, you know, obviously they're the foundation of Marxism. And uh, Ingalls here expresses what Marxism's historical role. He says, uh, th- th- it, this is the basic idea of Marxism on the question of the historical role and the meaning of the state. So the state mm-hmm. is a, um, it's a product of society, right? That at a certain point it places itself above society. So there's society and then there's the state, which are completely different things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the state is uh, the, I think Ingalls, or I think Lenin talks about this, that, uh, um, the state is the kind state, of like, yeah, it's kind of like the conciliator of the classes. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, he, in my version, he says the state is the product and manifestation of the irreconcilability of the class contradictions, and it arises to the extent the class contradictions objectively cannot be reconciled. So, yeah, right. Yes, exactly. I see that. Yeah, I think that's in mine as well. And then he also yeah. talks about how the state is a is an organ of class domination and an organ of oppression of one class by the no- another. Its aim is the creation of quote-unquote order, which legalizes and perpetuates this oppression by moderating the collisions between classes. So one thing that, um, one thing that um, differs from Lenin uh, as a Bolshevik versus the Mensheviks, which is what Karl Kotsky is, uh-huh. Is that, and he he constantly talks about Karl Kotsky. You know, he's like yeah, a lot. very against him. Um, which obviously, because Karl Kotsky's a, a a democratic socialist, right? Yeah, I was, yeah, so, he was a li- he was like a liberal or something. He was a yeah, he was a Russian democratic socialist, yeah. right? So right. Th- that's what he he calls him Kotskyists, right? Instead of Marxist, right? Because Kotsky believes that the state, uh, a democratic socialist, believes that the state can be maintained. In that, um, well, at least in this in this nomenclature, in this way that he uses that they use democratic socialists, they believe that the state could be maintained and that revolution didn't have to be violent, right? And the thing about it is, like Marx doesn't like Marx himself never says like go pick up a gun and shoot people in the head, right? right. But there is a revolutionary tone to Marx's work. So it's, it's, it's a little naive to say Marx is entirely non-revolutionary, which is what Kossi says, right? Like, you know, there is no, he thinks that um, you don't have to have the destruction of the apparatus of state power, but this, the apparatus of state power, according to Lenin was created by the ruling class. So there obviously has to be a destruction of it. Um, mm-hmm. There, so there's, um, 
on part two, he talks about the special bodies of armed men, prisons, etc. And he says like one mm-hmm. of the, the, there's one of the biggest things that is differing from the state versus the old form of tribal and gentilic society is according to Ingalls is that the state organizes itself into an armed power right. um, that exercises its power through force and it exercises um, class yeah, the poli- domination. Yeah, the police. Yes, P- police, military. Uh, they yeah. even talk about the standing army. It's just that mm-hmm. literally Lenin says a standing army and police are the chief instruments of state power. But can this mm-hmm. be otherwise? Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> what we have here is that there is um, the standing army is a special body of armed men and, and the police and standing above society and become becoming separated from it. So interestingly enough, when we talk about um yeah, he says the breakup of society into irreconcilably and irreconcilably antagonistic classes. So what's interest what what's most interesting about this first part is mm-hmm. that there he does make a, a statement of like remember how like we talked about and I think we talked about it um, on one of the other pods, but how the um, how cops aren't necessarily like how they're everyone does the meme where cops are class traders because they're like mm. instruments of the upper class, but like the underclass or the, you know, they don't make enough. They don't make enough money to have enough capital to be upper class. Right. So Lenin, yeah. interestingly enough, says that they're not even part of the dynamic at all. I, I at least I think that's what he's saying. He because he talks about how the state, the army, and the the police are above the society, right? They mm-hmm. they're separated from society in that they are uh, instruments of violence against the lower class. Um, with this like veneer of maintaining like law and order, right? Yeah, like so. I was gonna. I was trying to think of a good metaphor for it, but like, it's almost like he's saying the. If he's saying that they're completely, yeah, it, they wouldn't even really be part of. I can see what he's saying because they don't. I mean, what is so? What feels so societal, or communal about armed men? You know, like, you know, up, upholding a certain way of uh, of life or a certain you know upholding capital protection you know like what's so societal about it you know so i can i get i get what he's saying there right um they are they're separated from society by their very Mm -hmm. nature right yeah like the nature of the police and the the army is to maintain um class domination right Mm -hmm. and so by their very nature they are separated they are um literal arbiters of violence against um people So and that's, I think a lot of, when we see stories and there was a story that came out recently about this. Um, I think, it, I don't know when it happened. I don't know how recent it was, but did you see that story about that? Uh, that uh, I don't know if he was police or if he was state police or if he was, he might've been national guard. I don't know, but he, he, uh, he killed himself because he, he almost, he, he like, he kind of came out of it. Like he, he jumped, he, he came out of that, the, the unsocietal aspect of being uh, an officer of it's almost like he realized that he was being a tool used for somebody else, you know, and he yeah. came out of that and it hit him so hard that he couldn't handle it. So there's like a, there's a YouTube video about his, he made a, he made a video before he died. He uh, basically talking about how, like he says he's done 
I mean, these are my words, not his, but he, he basically said he was done serving. Uh, he was basically done serving people and serving an idea that doesn't protect, that doesn't actually protect everyday people, right? Uh, working class people. And uh, I'm gonna see if I can find that and I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. But, um, but he, but yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like those people, I don't know how it's to say about other than they just get, they get so caught up in that cycle or the other, I don't know how to say it other than just, they're like brainwashed or they're, they're, Naturalistic it's a, it's a idea, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. community, right? Right, yeah. It's, I mean, it, it's some kind of community, and and the community that they that they attach to, you know, it's. I don't know. It's it's crazy that there's people, uh, officers, live in that kind of that kind of community, but don't see that they're a terror on another community, you know, or, and so it's like a. It's like the whole idea, the whole nature of the of the armed, you know, state is. It, it it's just it blows my mind that, and it just comes down to just. It comes down to the bourgeoisie not wanting them to know what they are, you know. So, so like they they give them just enough capital, they give them just enough to get them by and to keep them keep them focused on being the tool that they are. Mm-hmm. But that but this one guy, this one example saw it like he it's almost like you know coming out of the matrix for for god's sakes it's like he yeah i mean like, holy shit you know like i was and the guy just it was so heavy for him and and he realized it sad story yeah. i mean that's what happened with uh christopher dorner right like may he rest in peace he's smiling down on oh, us yeah, the, uh, the, well, was he, he was in la right was he an la officer or something like that yeah 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 because he, he exposed or i don't know I guess he exposed it in his death, but he uncovered a lot of shady shit going on in the LAPD and just, you know, it lost his fucking mind. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, killed a bunch of officers, which is like fucking like, it was so funny. Like it was, uh, I think Comtown talked about him being a hero and stuff. So, which is funny. Yeah. Um, okay. So also what Lennon talks about is that there is a, um, that there is a buildup of military and, um, that right. have grown to monstrous proportions and the predatory war of 1914 through 1917 for the domination mm-hmm. of the world uh, by England or Germany. Uh, they basically, he said that like England and Germany has this like division of spoils that have um, brought the swallowing up of all the forces of society by the rapacious state power near to a complete catastrophe. Um, so Lenin has this like, um, has this insight that Martin Ingalls doesn't because he lived in a time where world war one was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and he lived through, of course the Russian revolution and everything. Um, and so he said that like, what happens is this, the great powers, the rivalry between them has given birth to an imperialist war. Um, mm-hmm. He said basically, but this imperialist war is a cover up for the defense of their predatory policy of their capitalist classes by phrases about the defense of the fatherland or the defense of the Republic in the revolution, et cetera. So um, Lenin talks about this a lot. I think he even has a book uh, and we might have to read this too, which is, uh, I think it's called like capitalism, the highest form of imperialism. And it's like one of his very famous um, works. Mm -hmm. Um, But the thing that he, uh, the thing that he talks about, especially like even in this section is that, um, capitalism breeds rivalry to the point where to get the the the, the proles to fight for the side of their bourgeois, their bourgeoisie because the bourgeoisie mm-hmm. don't have to fight 
wars, right? Right. Um, so they say, hey, we need to defend the fatherland from foreign invaders, um, which is something that, like, you know, builds up morale. And they're like, yeah, like, oh. viva la France, viva la Germany or whatever, right? So, right. Um, which really just came down to, like, yeah, it was, we should read that. But, it, yeah, it's, it came down to the bourgeois really just wanted to protect their capital in order and also gain more capital. I mean, you know, they don't want foreign invaders, but they had no problem thinking about invading somebody else. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially um, if it was in the name of capital, you know? Right. And uh, he says that, um, you know, th- that for the maintenance of a special public force standing above society, taxes and state loans are needed so this is mm-hmm. section three of the first chapter the state as an instrument for the exploitation of the oppressed classes he says so um special laws are enacted regarding the sanctity and the inviolability of the officials the shabbiest police servant mm-hmm. has more authority than the representative of the clan even the head of the military power of a civil state may well be the least among the chiefs of the clan the unconstrained mm-hmm. and uncontested respect which is paid for him um Mm-hmm. So yeah, so he's talking about how elected officials are um, basically organs of state power and how they have privileged position among, you know, even the lowest representative of the state power has a privileged position among the rest of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says that. Um, let's see here. Yeah, and we're seeing that. I mean, and I like to kind of apply that to today i mean we we see that in our own you know democratic republic you know the officials that we that we champion and and that we expect to to rule us you know they they can't get to that position a lot of times without the help of some corporation or some or or, you know the bourgeoisie essentially they can't they can't get there without the the capital to get there so like you can say what you want about aoc you know she's not your friend as you know we we like to say she got there and now like i mean i don't i don't know i don't know enough about her campaign to know how much money there was in it but like she still Mm -hmm. got to a position and she's working in a system that still doesn't act in the interest of you know the, the the working class she's she's not like a proletarian in that sense yeah um the the yeah the biggest thing about it is like um so he even like i'm glad you said that because he even talks about how um he, he it's so funny like literally the next section he talks about how um the democratic republics are the ironically are the um the ones that wealth wields its power indirectly but all the more effectively First, by the means of direct corruption of the officials, America. Second, by the means of the alliance of the government with the stock exchange, uh, France and America. Yeah. Yeah, A democratic republic is the best possible political shell for capitalism. And therefore, once capital has gained control, um, you know, of this very best shell, it establishes its power so securely, so firmly that no change, either persons or institutions or parties in the bourgeois republic can shake it. Yeah, because so, it's such a it's such a it's such a complex freaking system. Like, say, I mean, I I took I took basic like principles of government co- course in college, and I wish I had taken more like political philosophy just just to get some 
you know, entry level ideas into my head. So I don't have to, I mean, I'm here, I'm at this point now, so I kind of learned all of my own anyway, but like even, even to just thinking about how a democratic Republic works and the, the, the system in place, the balances and the, the back and forth and, you, it really does uphold the system of capital because it's almost like it's a system that is so complex and it's it it's not simplified to where things can get accomplished but like it doesn't even a democratic republic just if you try to explain to somebody who doesn't know what it is i mean how would you even try to explain it you would just be like to be honest, like you can't really do anything with it. You know, that's how I would start. You know, it's it really is just a it, it, yeah, it's a shell or it's like a um, it's like an umbrella for to keep the it's like an umbrella of uh, to keep the rain and to keep the the storms off of the bourgeoisie. Really, you know, it's like a an interwoven spider web. Really, it's like a it's like a spider web that just catches things. Uh, it catches you know what we would consider peasants or it catches maggots and things that the bourgeoisie feed on. And yeah, I mean, it really is just like a, it's a really strange interwoven idea, especially our Democrat uh, democracy. It's really strange. Right. Well, our democracy, like you said, is not a democracy. It's a democratic Republic, which are two, right. two different things. Oh, yeah. Democratic right. Republic is, is, you know, we uh, mm-hmm. vote on, uh elected officials right but mm-hmm. like we don't get the, the the elected officials are the ones who are in charge but the problem right. is that um and he makes it <clears throat> clear that the person um is the best political shell for capitalism because capitalism what, what happens is it establishes this power um that like mm-hmm. the rockefellers didn't give a fuck about who was in charge like as long as they were uh you know because the rockefellers paid who was in charge so like that's yeah the, exactly that's yeah. the biggest thing about it you know um, okay so so he talks about all of his um, so he talks about how the state hasn't existed for all eternity this is quoted from Engels mm-hmm. um, and there have been societies which managed without it which had no conception of the state and of state power um, he said that at a certain stage of economic development um, which was bound up by uh, which is bound up with the cleavage of society and the classes, the state became a necessity mm-hmm. owing to this cleavage. We are now rapidly approaching a stage in the development of production at which the existence of these classes has not only ceased to be a necessity, but is becoming a hindrance to production. They will disappear as inevitable as they arose in an earlier stage. Along with them, the state will inevitably disappear. A society mm-hmm. that organizes production new on the basis of a free and equal association of the producers would put the whole state machine where it will then belong in the museum of antiquities side by side with the spinning wheel and the bronze axe. Now those are Ingalls, Ingalls words quoted in Lenin. So oh. the biggest thing that um, he talks about at the next part, which is part four, the withering away of the state and violent revolution. Oh. There's a lot of um, misquoting of this where he talks, where people think Marx and Ingalls are, mere opportunists who are talking about like the withering away yeah exactly exactly, as this magical thing right right but the withering away of the state isn't like the state is not abolished right Mm -hmm. this is part of Ingalls too the state's not abolished it withers away it's from the standpoint Mm -hmm. that we must appraise the phrase people's free state so Mm -hmm. the thing that 
that happens is that he said the state is not the the withering away of the state is not a negation of revolution right it's not a thing yeah, that he is, says uh he says it's like it's a it's a slow suppression or it's a he you know he says oppressive state and he says suppressive state he's like so imagine he think about it like another state but like it's a suppressive state of the bourgeoisie it's a suppressive state of capitalism like it it's a it's a you know it's a body that keeps those things away um he even says uh uh Engels at the very uh uh start of his argument says that in seizing state power the proletariat by the same act puts an end to the state as a state um is what he says that Engels is saying so way it's like Engels is saying I think what Engels is trying to say is like a, a the the state that will become after the state withers away will be or I guess before the state altogether with this way will be like a type of state, but it's not an oppressive state. It's like a suppressive state. You know, it's like, it's almost like it has to eat itself. I don't know how else to describe it, but it's almost yeah, like, um, you know. The biggest thing about this though, is like, um, um, the way that Lenin describes it is that in the way Engels describes it is that the withering away of the state, isn't this like utilitarian, like, the the proletariat immediately seizes control and then like the mm. state is just gone. It's not and, and Ingalls even points it out. He says that it's not right. Um it's not the so-called anarchists that the state's gonna be mm. abolished overnight. He said right. that ultimately when you destroy a class-based society, the state as an as an operating apparatus will eventually go away too because the state is like community's not and society's not because society and community will still be around, but the state as right. it exists currently is a organ mm -hmm. of class antagonisms. Right. So like yeah. the state is a repressive uh, utility. Um, and the thing that Lenin describes is that um, he says that the state's a special repressive force. Um, mm -hmm. And that what will happen is um, the proletariat will establish the dictatorship of the proletariat, right? Which is, I think this, I'm not 100% mm -hmm. sure, but I think this is the first time you hear this phrase, which is what people like to throw around a lot, which is like where people say, oh, we're going to put you in the gulag or whatever. But mm -hmm. the thing the thing is like, he says the, the, the destruction, this is the dictatorship of the proletariat is what constitutes the beginning of the, the destruction of the state as the state. So... Mm -hmm when the dictatorship of the proletariat happens, it creates this, um, it, it creates this act, which is the seizure of the means of production in the name of society. Right. And then what will happen is that there's going to be pushback by the bourgeois, right? It's an obvious that such a substitution of one proletarian special repressive force for another bourgeois special rep repressive force can in no way take the place in the form of a withering away. So, mm what Lenin says here is that the, the proletariat will seize the means of production through mm -hmm. revolution, right? Through um, breaking their chains and will organize as a, as a class that is the uh, oppressed class to, to stop the oppression of by the bourgeoisie. And what will happen is eventually when you create this dictatorship of the proletariat, it leads to this transistory period where the state, um, will wither away because there will no longer be a state. There'll just be society. Um, right. He says, and, and, you know, now, right now we have, um, 
you know, he says democratic republic is the best form of the state for the proletariat under capitalism. He said, but we have no right to forget that wage slavery is the lot of the people, even in the most democratic bourgeois republic. Oh yeah, right? I highlighted that. Too. I highlighted that too. Yeah, I'm so glad. To, yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah. That's a that's a great part because mm-hmm. um, the biggest thing, and, and maybe you want to jump in here t- a little bit too, is that um, I always say like, you know, there's this there's this contradiction between the free and, and GJ talks about this a lot. There's mm-hmm. this contradiction between the freedom from and freedom to. So you have the freedom to work any job you want, but you don't have the freedom from work itself or the freedom from selling your labor. You have to, or you'll die because mm. there's, no, there's no choice there, which is what we talk about all the time in, on the pod. Right. Um, so no, yeah. That's, that's exactly, no, that's exactly what I would have said about that. No, I, I highlighted that exact same, that exact same sentence. And no, that's exactly what it said. It's like the, you know, we're, we're slaves to our wages under, under it. And it's, it's free as, we are, you know, uh, under a uh, democratic republic to say, or, you know, we're still, we're still financially, I guess I hate saying that word because I wish there was another word for it. But like when I say financially, I mean, it really is, you know, your finances under capitalism are also just like a, a means of life. And so like when I say financially, I did basically just mean, you know, we're, we're financially chained but i mean we're just like we're chained by our uh by our lack of our lack of power or our our lack of actual liberty under under it uh, a capital system so yeah that's i mean that's all i would really add to it yeah um and i also wanted to say this one last thing before we move on to chapter two unless you have anything more to say but my, my last thing is that he talks about how um he says there's uh let's see here where is it let's see uh i think i was gonna say something about like um where he talks about hingle's argument about you know the um the revolutionary role of history and yeah well i mean we kind of you kind of already touched about that how like um where he talks about the argument about a uh a non-violent i don't know if he says the Ingalls says that hold on it's basically right before it's like right at the end of chapter one i don't know if that's where yeah, it, I think where he talk. Yeah, basically, you know, he talks about how there Trotsky's, can't be there can't be any nonviolent revolution. Right. Yeah, exactly. Unless they, I mean, obviously, unless you know the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie won't give up their um, right, give up their uh, uh, power. Well, yeah, really, you know, he just because it will be a violent collision. Well, he he clarifies. You know, he says that in the doctrine of Marx and Engels about the inevitability of a violent revolution refers to the bourgeois state. You know, like it, right. it refers to the. Um, it doesn't refer to society. It doesn't refer to a revolution against society. It refers, and specifically, the state that the bourgeoisie are, uh, up, you know, that they've created uh, in the midst of all the. The old, you know, the first instances of class conflicts, you know, it's they, um, they that's just kind of how we get that's the note he kind of ends that first chapter on is um, any kind of revolution, the a revolution, we hear that word thrown around everywhere. And it's, you know, a lot of general, a lot of you you know, can general discussions. Me. There you are. Oh, did I go out on you? Yeah, you went out. Okay. Well, no, I mean, I, I think, did you hear what I said about, uh, I mean, yeah, you heard what I said when he was just talking about the 
any kind of revolution is not just a revolution against society or it's not a it's mm-hmm. not oh we're, we're we're revolting against society like you know he clarifies that the the revolution against capital industry it's against the state that it creates you know right. like the state that it creates and that's really i mean that's all i said but and then it just kind of fluffed it up a little bit yeah well, i mean one of the biggest things and and uh, I, i'll say this before i'll say the last thing is that um yeah he talks about how the state is a uh, you know like i said it's an organ of um class oppression right so right. obviously the the revolution would have to be violent on it to overthrow that violent revolution to defend yourself essentially. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I do want to say this too, that what he talks about is he says that what happens is the social democratic literature of his day doesn't talk about dialectics. He says what usually replaces dialectics is eclectism. He says mm. eclectism is substitute for dialectics. This is the most usual, the most widespread phenomenon to be met within the official social democratic literature of our day in relation to Marxism. Such a substitution is, of course, nothing new. It may be observed even in the history of classic Greek philosophy. When Marxism is adulterated to become opportunism, the substitution of eclectism for dialectics is the best method of deceiving the masses. It gives an illusory satisfaction. It seems to take into account all sides of the process, all the tendencies of development, all the contradictory factors and so forth. Whereas in the reality, it offers no consistent and revolutionary mm-hmm. view of the process of social development at all. Oh, so yeah. um, Marx and Engels, he, he talks about how they, that there is a, uh, you know, the violent revolution refers to the bourgeois state. He said it cannot mm-hmm. be replaced by the proletarian state um, through withering away, but as a general rule, only through a violent revolution. Right. Um, basically, the, the the biggest thing is that what, what he what the social democratic literature will talk about um they, they will like he said at the very beginning of this chapter they will uh turn him into just mere talking heads and start and stop talking about you know he says you know it's uh violent revolution isn't uh necessary right um mm-hmm. but but through the the dialectical um, method, which is working through contradiction, there is, there has to be a negation there. Um, Yeah. So that's the last thing. Yeah. And and I I will, uh, on that, I will go back to what I said about how the, uh, the armed, the armed side of the state, how it's not societal and the bourgeoisie keep it that way because they, they try to keep as much dialectics out of it as possible. You know, like you don't, you don't want, your you don't want your weapons and your tools of your state doing dialectics because then eventually they'll figure out that they're just being used you know that they're yeah, that, the thing about the thing about dialectics is that it works through contradiction right it, it right. works through through the negation of the negation right uh, which you know marx kind of um talks about right with his dialectical mm-hmm. materialism is like through a historical material lens um mm-hmm. you know he right. works so yeah so um chapter two so i guess we can go on to chapter two which is um mm-hmm. the experiences of 1848 through 1851 on the eve of revolution um mm-hmm. he talks about the first product production of mature marxism is the poverty of philosophy and the communist manifesto were created on the very eve of the revolution of 1848 um it, it's kind of funny uh uh he says because the poverty of philosophy uh it will he says in the course of his development wrote Marx in the poverty of philosophy, the working class will replace the old bourgeois society 
by an association which excludes classes and their antagonisms. So there will no longer be any real political power, for political power is precisely the official expression of the class antagonism within bourgeois society. So again, what he's talking about is that mm-hmm. Marx talks about this withering away of the state where there's no longer a state because there's no need for a state because there's no longer any class contradiction. There's no class conflict. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so he, he quotes, so Lenin quotes Marx quite a lot in this section, but obviously mm-hmm. you need to quote the master, right? Well, yeah, he's, I mean, he's just pulling out the, he's pulling out all of his, you know, he's pulling out all the cards out of his sleeve. Cause yeah, I mean, he, like I said, it says it in the introduction. He even like, he even acknowledges that in most of this, he pulls just straight from Marx's words. So yeah, I mean, we, this does, this kind of covers a lot of what we've talked about. And I mean, we can kind of flesh out where he talks about, um, uh, I kind of, I, I made a note on this, on this little, uh, section here. Um, and it really, it's just another way of looking at the state. And uh, he says, this is, this is Lenin's writing. He's not quoting anyone, but he says, the, the exploiting classes, uh, they need political rule uh, in order to uh, maintain their exploitation, and, you know, their selfish, selfish interests and uh, an insignificant minority against the vast majority of people. Um, yes, I, I highlight that as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the exploited classes need political rule in order to completely abolish all and the exploited classes need political rule in order to completely abolish all exploitation. So it's like, it's almost like you have to fight fire with fire, but like, you don't, you, you're, he's not saying that you, you, you're, um, it's uh, the, <laughs> I mean, it kind of what it sounds like to me is what he's saying for, for the exploited class to be represented politically. Um, you have to do that. Like I said, we're they're going to have to do that through a violent way, uh, if you know, in order to make them their make their interest known to the the exploiting class, and um, you know, it just goes on to say that uh, in order to completely abolish the exploitation in the interest of the vast majority of the people, and against the insignificant minority consisting of uh, slave owners, and landlords, capitalists, what he says, but yeah, the slave um, owners of modern times, I like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So he basically just kind of. Um, I think that's a that's a good kind of meat and potatoes area of what he's talking about, and another another uh, emphasis on uh, the state being uh, the political state and the political role is the exploiting class needs needs it to continue exploiting. Um, yeah, I, I mean, yes, exactly. So, so one of the things that like Lenin talks about here in this particular section is that um, that. Uh, the lower classes, right? The the mm. um, proletariat. They need uh, political power, right? Like actual right. political power, mm. not just representative political power. So what happens is, um, he said he says that uh, you have to. He says it, it won't be you know it won't be a transition to socialism in a dreamy fashion, not in the form of the overthrow of the rule of the exploiting class but in the form of the peaceful submission of the minority to a majority conscious of its aims. Um, he says this petty bourgeois utopia uh, mm-hmm. connected with the idea of the states being above classes in practice led to the betrayal of the interests of the tolling classes. So um, essentially what he's saying here is that um, you have to, he talks about these sham socialists, right? Which right. took away, uh, you know, took away this class struggle with this idea that the 
the minority who control, which are the capitalists who control right. the state will peacefully submit to the minority, which isn't going to happen. So I think the biggest thing that Ingalls talk or Ingalls, uh, the biggest thing that Lenin talks about here is that, uh, yeah, cause these are all Lenin's words is oh. that, um, social, like as a socialist, you have to realize like through, um, if you talk about, uh, if you try try to to gain political power, it's not going to happen through peaceful means because they're not just going to, you know, uh, the bourgeoisie aren't going to like willingly give up their power. So this is why I hate it when people compare um, like Lenin to Hitler or anything, right? Because right. like Hitler Hitler's ideal was that you know like Jews were like inferior so we have to kill them and so we're like blacks and like yeah. the Aryan race was superior just yeah just because they're jews yeah exactly. <clears throat> right whereas like the bourgeoisie are a minority in that they but they they are the actual like rulers of society and what happens is like they don't they can choose not to be bourgeoisie like you can mm -hmm. choose not to exploit people but like there's no there's nothing that inherently makes someone a bourgeoisie right it's like your it's your class so the thing is, like, you could give that up and you wouldn't be have to be violently overthrown because, like, if you just gave up your power tomorrow to the majority of people, which is what Lenin talks mm -hmm. about, he doesn't talk about, you know, right. oh, we need Russians. He doesn't talk about we need Germans to be on top. We don't need Americans to be on top. We need the proletariat, which is the majority right. of people in the world, right? Either right. proletariat or peasants, which, you know, Marx discusses this too, and we talked about this on on the last pod in in uh, the Communist Manifesto. Is that the proletariat in this regard, in this sense, isn't just like the proletariat as a political class. It's like you know, it's the the petty bourgeois, the people who are kind of bourgeois but not really, the people who are peasants, right? Which we don't really have a peasant class anymore, especially in America. But like everyone who's not the bourgeoisie, who's like a who who isn't a capitalist, is included in this like this type of like revolution right right um <clears throat> so what he what he says is like um the capitalist class is like best because it, the capitalist class breaks up and atomizes the peasantry and it's best at this because it uh uh what happens is he says, he says in all the uh he says the capitalist class atomizes the peasantry right so it's it's really good at atomizing the peasantry but the the, mm -hmm. the thing that they don't do well he says it welds together unites and organizes the town proletariat right which is the difference oh, between yeah. the peasantry and the the proletariat um <clears throat> he says that uh that uh mark so he says the doctrine of class struggle as applied by marx to the question of the state and of the socialist revolution leads inevitably to the recognition of the political rule of the proletariat and of its dictatorship i.e of a power shared with none and relying directly upon the armed force of the masses the overthrow of the bourgeoisie is realizable only by the transformation of the proletariat into the ruling class able to crush the inevitable and desperate resistance of the bourgeoisie and to organize for the new economic order all the toiling and exploited classes. So that's where Lenin talks about um, how all the toiling and exploited classes, not just the proletariats, mm -hmm. will, um, you know, PMCs, whatever the fucking new words are that people just make up randomly. Uh, mm, right. All those people can can be part of the revolution as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it has to, it has to, for it to be a true, you know, representative 
uh, system where the power lies in the majority of people, you know, those people have to be included. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, to you know, you can give up. Like I said, you can give up being a bourgeois, but you can't give up, mm-hmm. you know, being you, you, like you can't give up being like inherently, you know, like. Uh, if someone were to say we need to genocide all Irish Americans, like I'm shit out of luck. I can't fucking magically be not be Irish American, you know, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is your, this your is I- example. You can't give up your identity, right? Right. Yeah. There's there's a certain there's a certain like uh you know in society mm-hmm. there's a certain like if you're Jewish you know like mm-hmm. you're, right or whatever you can't really give that up, but you can give up like class, you know, essentially. Yeah, I- Oh, did oh, it do no, something? Yeah, because you cut out on me for decided. a second. I was like, uh-oh. Yeah, my computer decided to go to sleep, so I don't know why it stops uh, Discord, though, when it does no, that's that. Um, okay, so uh, section two of chapter two is called The Results of the Revolution. Mm-hmm. And it says that what happened is the first French Revolution developed centralization. Um, so what happened is that Napoleon um, you know, Napoleon perfected the uh, the state machinery um, because it, it's interesting that the, what happened and he even, he says that Marx is talking about this in the 18th Brumaire of Louis, the Louis Bonaparte, which is, you know, one of our books that we're going to read. Um, right. But yeah, so it's interesting that uh, um, he says that Marx makes a tremendous step forward in comparison with the position of the communist manifesto. There, the question of the state is still treated extremely in the abstract. But he uh-huh. said here the question is treated in a concrete manner because Marx is talking about essentially the um, the, the French Revolution, the first French Revolution. Uh-huh. Um, it's interesting because the French first French Revolution is this marked point in history where um, for the first time feudalism is overthrown and there is a uh, there is a idea of like the bourgeoisie being in power. Um uh-huh. You know, which is what I say all the time to people. Like when people are like, "Oh, you can't like capitalism's always existed." It's like, no, it hasn't. <laughs> like, it's pretty, oh, yeah, yeah. pretty relatively new development in the terms mm-hmm. of the history of the world. Um, but people people think of it as inevitable. Um, but yeah, uh, well, yeah. At the end, right there, he says, "All previous revolutions perfected the state machine, whereas it must be you know broken, smashed." <laughs> so. Yeah, he says, and he even says yeah. this too. Like he's been stating this a lot. He says, like here on page on my page twenty five, he says, in a society mm. without class antagonisms, the state is unnecessary and actually it's impossible. Oh yeah, you know, true to his philosophy of dialectical materialism, Marx takes as his basis the experience of the great revolutionary years of eighteen fifty eight through fifty one. Um, here, as everywhere, his teaching is the summing up of experience, illuminated by a profound mm-hmm. philosophical world conception and a rich knowledge of history. He says that there's a centralized state power peculiar to bourgeois society came into being in the period of the fall of absolutism. Bureaucracy and the standing army Mm -hmm. constitute a parasite on the body of the bourgeois society, a parasite born of the internal antagonisms which tear that society Mm -hmm. asunder, but essentially a parasite clogging every pore of existence. There's that uh, parasitic metaphor that we saw Marx use in uh, Capital. Yeah, I think I I didn't mark as much on these ending pages, but I did I did mark that uh, he talks about how 
the strengthening strengthening of the bureaucratic and military apparatus has been going on through all the bourgeois mm-hmm. revolu- revolutions of which Europe has seen so many since the fall of feudalism. Mm-hmm. So interestingly enough, Lenin talks about this, and so does Marx as well, is that the fall of feudalism leads to a bourgeois revolution, which leads to just this domination of uh, society by the bourgeoisie. Right. And I, towards the, uh, the um, I, I didn't mark up a lot either, but I did mark yeah, up. Yeah. So uh, let's see here. So the last little bit of, uh, can you hear me? Yeah. The last little bit of what, I, you know, of what I'm going to say um, until Austin comes back, I guess, can, uh, can, is that, can you hear me? Um, Imperialism, in particular, the era of banking capital, the era of gigantic capitalist monopolies, the era of the transformation of monopoly capitalism into state monopoly capitalism, shows an unprecedented strengthening of the state machinery and unprecedented growth of that bureaucratic and military apparatus side by side with the increase of repressive measures against the proletariat alike in the monarchical and the freest Republican countries. Um, Austin, welcome back. Uh oh, if you're still there. Well, shit fire. I guess I'll. Hey, 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 can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I knew I went out because I was talking. Like, you just kept talking. I was like, oh shit, you can't hear me. <laughs> so, correct. Yes, I could not hear you. So, um, hopefully, Craig didn't record both of us, but. Yeah. Well, he probably did. Well, I realized it pretty quick when I started talking and you, you kept going. And I was like, okay, yeah, something, something's wrong here. But uh, just real quick, what I. Yeah, I didn't mark up a lot either because I, I started talking after you said there wasn't a lot that you kind of pulled from it. But um, one thing that I liked that he that Lenin emphasized was um, it, he talks about Marx a lot in this section. And uh, one of my favorite kind of points that uh, stuck out to me is he says that uh, a lot of people just assume, you know, Marx, and I maybe this isn't obvious, but like, you know, class struggle was a thing before Marx says it was, you know, right. like he... Um, you know, the main part of Marx's teaching is class struggle. And he it's not really the main point. He says, you know, that uh, Marx just kind of uh, uh, put it into uh, a concrete idea and um, brought, some, brought some, Did I cut out again? Damn. Austin's, uh, Austin's Wi-Fi is just absolute trash. <laughs> Fuck. All right. Um, okay, so I'll keep talking. Uh, that way we can just fill dead time until Austin comes back. So hopefully Craig uh, records me. Um, yeah, he said that people who only recognize the class struggle is not yet a Marxist, um, you know, because he may be found not to have gone beyond the boundaries of bourgeois reasoning and politics. Um, so he's like, <laughs> Lenin talks about how Karl Kotsky is the, uh, the biggest opportunist within Marxism. Um, he says within this realm inside of its framework, not a single educated liberal will refuse to recognize the class struggle quote in principle, unquote exclamation point. Um, so me? the biggest I'm thing back, is that, if you could uh, that Lenin ends here with, and, and I guess this is like the end of the pod, uh, until Austin can come back and, and talk a little bit more. Um, Wi-Fi traffic must be getting bad. Can you hear me? The sense of the teachings of Marx about the state 
is assimilated only by one who understands that the dictatorship of the proletariat uh, of a single class is necessary not only for any class society generally, but only for the proletariat, which has overthrown the bourgeoisie, but for the entire historic period which separates capitalism from classless society from communism. The forms of the bourgeois states are exceedingly variegated, but their essence is the same. In one way or another, all these states are the last analysis, inevitably, of a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. The transition from capitalism to communism will certainly bring a great variety and abundance of political forms, but the essence will inevitably be only one, the dictatorship of the proletariat. So I guess to end, because I think Austin's internet pooped out, um, so I'll just end the, end the podcast, I guess. Um, unless he comes back. Austin, are you back? Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think we're hitting like peak traffic for like Wi-Fi here or just like in general internet users because it's like it's hitting 2.30 now so I'm guessing a lot of people are coming back from whatever the fuck they're doing. But uh, but no, I, I heard most of what you said and I, I mean, I couldn't have put it any better. Um, but yeah. yeah, I'll come back I'll come back for the closing words. But, but yeah, I, yeah I, mean, I, 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 got, I heard everything you said. Give us the closing words, Austin. And if you go again, uh, I will just say that uh, next time well, we're reading chapter I'm, three, chapter four. So I'm going to. Uh, what I was going to do is I was going to. Uh, I, I've been working on this video I made where, like, because like uh, I made this. Uh, I made. I did some Photoshop work on a video, and I was going to uh, send it to you so you can upload it to the post whenever you uh, whenever you post the. When the episode is up, but the uh, I made a video of like uh, it's Stone Cold Steve Austin walking out, and it's like it's Lennon's head because like they it's funny because it's like Lennon's got a goatee and everything, and I just like Photoshop Lennon's head on the Stone Cold Steve Austin, and his shirt says Marks three sixteen, so like he's walking out in the name of Marxism, and he's just like giving the stunner to like all of these like liberals and shit. It's pretty fucking great, but um, but yeah, so that's uh, you know, it's I guess I guess my final words is I I I like. So far, I'm really into this, uh, and I, I think um, a lot more people should. I think before you jump into the heavy text of capital, um, you know, state revolutions uh, a lot more meat and potatoy about um, Marxist thought and Marxist ideas, and how a revolution, a revolution against, uh, or the term revolution in this sense is usually used against. Uh, you know, they think revolution, you hear revolution, you think you're just going to change society and change the way, you know, make yourself known and, and change society for that way. But it's really a revolution, the, the state itself that the that the ruling class is created. And I think that's a good introduction that we had from these first two chapters. And uh, that's all I got to say about that. Yeah. Um, so what did you, what did you, what were your overall thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think it's, I mean, I think it's a it's a great companion book to the manifesto. It's almost like uh, I think it worked out perfectly that the, we're reading these two back to, back to back because Lenin is so he uses so much uh, text from Engels and Marx. I think it's I think it just ties really well and it just kind of puts a bow on what what a uh, you know a proletarian or a a working class revolution is, and that it's not just a a societal revolution, but like it's a it's a revolution against the state, and the goal of it, you know, is to is to eliminate the need for a state, and it's just to let the to to create a a ruling or to create a ruling body to create a, a society, a commune that is so uh, self sufficient and so automated and 
we all look out for each other. We all work for each other, but that it, it's so the, the revolution should be to whip to, to eliminate the need for a state entirely. And that's, I think, uh, I, th- I think it's really easy to read. Like, I don't, I don't think it's, and, and Marx, Marx has a weird kind of like flowery way of, of writing. And I think he, Marx is a little bit harder to read. I and mean, we haven't read Ingalls yet. But I think I think uh, at least my translation in the Penguins Classic version, it's really easy to read. So I think I think if you know if if you're finding yourself more and more anti-capitalist and realizing that you're actually you know in favor of a of a, a communist state or a you know a, a communal stateless uh, system, then you know I think I think it's a it's a good introductory uh, it's a good introductory you know political philosophy book i i would say you know it's 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 not i don't i'm not having difficulty reading it at all and a lot of it's i think a lot of it's just it's it's like filling the gaps for me that i may have may have had on what a uh, what a, a revolution against the state would be and and why what would happen or what the idea is uh you know what kind of what kind of society we're looking for in the need of or in the way that we get rid of a state and what would come of it you know what would rise from the ashes of of burning down a, a state you know so i think mm-hmm. it's i think overall i think it's it's really yeah it's you know it's easy to read and i would i would recommend it to I, I would recommend it to anyone really yeah i think i agree with that i think it's a yeah it's a good book so um like i said uh i guess next time we'll um talk about because there's six there's six yeah. chapters so about three and four next time so uh yeah but okay. great discussion great pod and we'll see you it's guys awesome next time. All right. Peace out.